So far to this point, we've looked at marriage among the saints in three different sections. Today, today we look at the fourth and the final one. So in Paul's very first letter to the church at Corinth, of which we do not have a record, that letter, when they wrote it, when they read it, resulted in them having questions that they wanted to ask Paul. And so we get an indication in chapter 7, verse 1, that Paul is addressing the questions that they have asked him, but we don't have a record of what those questions were. And so they had indicated that these things were pressing, and Paul has begun to deal with these more specifically in chapter 7 as it relates to marriage. And it appears that marriage was a very intentional question that, G- that Paul had asked, was asked of Paul by the church in Corinth. Verse 1 says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, which gives us an indication that Paul is addressing those questions. So beginning in chapter 7, Paul begins to address the questions related to marriage. And what was taking place in the church at Corinth was the alleged spiritually superior position of either being married or being single, depending upon which group you happen to listen to, or was influential for you. So for the sake of time, a very, very quick overview. In verses 2 through 7, Paul addresses married couples and says that being married, married is good, being married and celibate is unnatural, but being single is good, But being single and immoral, excuse me, being single and sexually active is immoral. So there's a a balance to what Paul is saying to the married and to the unmarried. In verses 8 and 9, he talks to the married people in general terms and says, Remain as you are. Don't seek a divorce. Don't seek a divorce and, and go out and be remarried to a believer. You don't need to do that. In verses 10 and 11, he speaks to those who are contemplating divorce and says, Remain as you are. You don't need to do anything about your current marital position. In verses 12 through 16, Paul talks to those that are now married to unbelievers after their conversion. So he speaks to the unbelieving, he speaks to the to the spouse with an unbelieving spouse, and they want to stay in that marriage, and he says, let them stay. He also speaks to the believing spouse married to an unbelieving spouse who wants to leave, and Paul says, let them go. We've been called to peace. Then in 17 through 24, Paul gives examples of why marital status is irrelevant to spirituality, which again was a big part of why he was addressing what he was addressing and the way he was addressing it. And now here in the final section, verses 25 through 40, Paul specifically addresses virgins. Now this is a unique group of people that have not yet been identified in any of the chapter 7 that we've looked at so far. So, the section that we're looking at today has been called, by every commentator I read, the most difficult passage in 1 Corinthians, and some have said this is the most difficult passage in all of Paul's writings. It isn't difficult due to exegetical or grammatical challenges, but because of questions that are just not easily answered. So that is a very subtle way of saying this is a very complicated message. It's going to be far longer than you probably want it to be, but it's not going to be anywhere as long as it really needs to be, but I was not willing to divide this up into two or three sections. So buckle up. I don't know how long this is going to take, but it's it's a very involved passage of Scripture. So part of the difficulty is determining how much detail is necessary in order to come to a conclusion that helps you and I understand what is the probable intent of Paul's word choice given the circumstances that we don't know any precision about what was going on. So questions are, who are the virgins mentioned in 728, 734, 736, 37 and 38? Most specifically, how you interpret or understand 37 and 38 affects how you understand the word usage of virgin for everything before that and what that actually means. And it's really difficult to sync those together in a clean and a clear way. Another one of the questions is, what is the present crisis that Paul notes in 726? Is Paul introducing an end times or an eschatological consideration for the people, or is he talking about something in the here and now? And 
looking at what Paul says in 26, and as he deals with it in verses 29-31, how does his eschatological outlook condition his response to the questions that they asked, which we really don't even know? Additionally, why does Paul mention widows again in 39 through 40, since he's already addressed this group earlier in verses 8 and 9? And with each one of these four considerations, you can divide these out into three, four, five, six different segments that make understanding and explaining in a coherent way, (laughs) in, in an awake audience, exactly what the conclusion by commentaries are, the scholars that have looked at this, what is the conclusion we're going to draw from this? So all of that to say this, one thing is very clear, Paul is consistent in verses 25 through 40 in the application of the principle that he established all the way throughout the passage, and that is, remain as you are. There was a preoccupation with changing your marital status, your marital position, based upon the philosophy and the influence that was pervasive within the Corinthian church about an alleged spiritual superiority to those that were married, to those that were in a quote-unquote spiritual marriage, to those that were single, And so it gets very, very complicated in understanding with any precision what it is Paul intends to say. But the principle is the same. Remain as you are. Now this is a very lengthy passage. We're going to read it in its entirety. And you will note that my version, the New American Standard, is probably going to be different from yours. So for example, the New American Standard says, Virgin Daughter... Daughter is supplied by the translators as what they think it refers to. The Greek says virgin. The New King James says virgin. The NIV says engaged. The ESV says betrothed. And all of these impact how you understand what the virgin is. When you get down to verses 37 and 38, regardless of how you understand virgin, there is the verb change that says giving her the virgin in marriage. So that's also confusing to how you understand the entirety of the passage. So here's what verses 25 through 40 say. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such, yet, excuse me, yet such will have trouble in this life. And I am trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none. And those who weep as though they did not weep. And those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. The one who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. But if any man thinks he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she has passed her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes, he does not sin, let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So that both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. 
A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Now, I'll tell you, my head hurts. I have read and reread and re-re-read and parsed and erased and deciphered and added and subtracted and I most complicated message I've ever had to try to prepare. So let me say this. Man is fallible. Man does not have the perfect ability to understand exactly what God intended when He gave this revelation. It does not mean that man has recorded it improperly. But there's a lot that goes into understanding Scripture. One of the chief principles in interpreting Scripture is to take the verse in context of the passage, the passage in context of the chapter, the chapter in context of the book, and the book in context of what the Bible teaches in its entirety. So you can't build a doctrine on a single verse, and you can't let something that isn't as clear in our minds as we would like it to be lead us to the conclusion that God's Word is not accurate, it isn't trustworthy, that it is flawed just like man is. But there are some real challenges in this passage, even though I believe with all my heart that it is the infallible, inerrant, perfect Word of God. Our challenge is finding out how we can apply that which we don't fully understand to our lives in a meaningful way. So I hope that you'll hold on to that as we go through this. Now, number one, the question of marriage. Each of these points in our outline has its own set of challenges. So the question of marriage is now proposed in verse 25 to a new group in our discussion on marriage, and that is the virgins. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. So the question of marriage is posed for those that are engaged. Now engaged is a conclusion that is derived based upon what is understood by the meaning of the word virgin in context of the entirety of the passage. So it is likely that Paul is using the term virgin similarly to the way the word betrothed would be used even though the word betrothed is a different word in the Greek. It carries the same meaning for the most part although it is a different word. So the term virgin appears six times in total in this passage and it's used with three primary views in mind. That's primary. There are a number of other possible views that aren't amongst those that aren't amongst the, the wider group of commentators who would translate a passage this particular way. So three primary ways that it is used and your particular Bible translation will give an indication of how they have chosen to understand that word. So the first one is a virgin daughter of marriable age. So you would have a virgin daughter that would be considered not of marriable age. She might be 12, 13, or 14. As we know from the account of the Gospel, that Mary was a virgin betrothed to Joseph. And by most accounts, it is believed, based upon Jewish history and culture, that she was probably 15 or 16. So that seemed to be the threshold of what was considered to be a marriable age. So this virgin daughter of marriable age is the way some have applied it, especially in light of verses 37 and 38, where it says that there is the giving of the virgin in marriage, or of his own virgin, which is rife with all kinds of challenges in and of itself. So that's the first way, the first primary way this is understood, a virgin daughter of Mary Bolade. Secondly, one of the possible views is it's a, the virgin speaks of a spiritual marriage, where consummation has not yet taken place. Now, it isn't known with certainty, but it is assumed that this is probably taking place in Corinth at the time, although this was far more common in the 2nd and the 3rd centuries of Christianity, and it would have been considered highly rare 
in Paul's day at the right at the time of the writing of the book of 1 Corinthians. So a spiritual marriage means they have taken some kind of a spiritual vow, but they have chosen not to engage in sexual activity because they believe that this is a higher spiritual position for them to be married and still be celibate. Now the challenge with that is what Paul has already established in talking to married people is that being married and celibate is unnatural. So it would kind of be uncommon for Paul to say what appears to us to be contradictory if this, in fa- if, if this is in fact what it is he meant. So the third option is it refers to a betrothed woman and her fiancé. So generally speaking, virgin would apply to a woman, but those argue, the commentators argue, that based upon the word choice and the culture and the context of all that Paul has said as it relates to marriage, it probably refers to a couple that is betrothed to one another. They are engaged, and this seems to be the preferable understanding based upon modern scholarship modern translation, and modern commentary thinking. So if Paul is teaching that each should remain in his current marital position at the time of conversion, which he's already established in great detail in the, in the, in the whole of chapter 7, the question is, what should an engaged couple do if they are betrothed, but Paul is saying, remain as you are? So that's where a lot of the uh, confusion and lack of precision falls in how we are to translate and understand this. So as Paul has already stated, Jesus himself did not teach on this subject, so he has no specific command from the Lord about virgins and their betrothal and what they are to do in terms of remaining as they are after their salvation. So Paul has no direct command from the Lord, so instead he has an opinion. Now, I don't know what every translation says in place of opinion, but it probably isn't the most accurate way of communicating what opinion means when we hear the word opinion, because after all, everybody has an opinion. And isn't that what's wrong with social media? I have an opinion, and you have an opinion, and I don't agree with your opinion, and I'm going to make it my mission to destroy you, and to discredit you, and to get back at you. So opinion, the word opinion, as it means to us, isn't the biblical way for us to understand what opinion means. Opinion biblically means conviction... Or a judgment. So Paul is saying that I have this judgment about remaining as you are, even if you are betrothed. Or I have a conviction about remaining as you are, even if you are betrothed, even though I don't have a direct command from the Lord. Now a conviction, in my understanding, is quite different from an opinion. An opinion can change. Opinion can be swayed or influenced. Convictions are much more difficult to change because they're rooted in a sense of identity and truth and something that is unchangeable. So this still carries divine authority, but not as an absolute and not as in a command. His conviction is based upon the mercy of God given to him and his ability to remain in his current state, which is single and celibate, and as such, this mercy that he has received from God has created a trustworthy conviction that Paul is now sharing with those who are betrothed and never been married. So in light of the question of Mary, Paul says this, singleness is better. Remember the question is being posed to those who are engaged to be married. Paul says singleness is better. Verse 26, I think then that this is good in view of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. There's that principle again, remain as you are after conversion. Paul's conviction was that it is better for single Christians to remain single if they have that gift from God. There should not be an external compulsion 
from society or a parent or somebody else that forces one to do something that they're not convicted of doing. So if you have that gift of singleness, God bless you, live well. If you don't have that gift of singleness, get married, God bless you, and live well. That's basically what Paul says all throughout this chapter. So it isn't a superior spiritual position to remain single, but it is better Practically speaking, as Paul introduces us, as Paul introduces to us here, because of distress. Paul doesn't identify this distress, but it is possible that he expands upon this distress, as we will see in verses 29 through 35. And one of the great challenges is, is that many think that this is the introduction of an end times or of an eschatological consideration. Although that's not Paul's common word usage or phrasing to communicate eschatology, even though he hints at it a little bit later. Okay? (laughs) So because of distress, Paul says it is better to remain single. That word present literally translates in the Greek as impending. So it means that it's pretty obvious to Paul what is about to happen, there is this impending distress. So we don't know exactly what that means. There isn't any clear history in Corinth that would enable scholars to go back and say, this is what Paul was referring to. But what we do know generally, both in the present tense and in an eschatological view, we can also apply from this passage. So in this time, Christians were already being arrested They were beaten, they were imprisoned because of the gospel, as we read all throughout the book of Acts. And oh, by the way, you can read the book of Acts in about an hour and a half to two hours, maybe, if you're just going to read through it. But that took place over 20, 30 years. So Christians were being arrested, imprisoned, and beaten, and persecuted for the gospel. And it's possible that Paul expected this persecution to increase... And it was this present distress, the reason that Paul was encouraging those to be betrothed to remain as they are because of the distress. Now, if Paul had the ability to speculate as to what was going to happen to Christians in the future, he was dead on. Because in about ten years, Emperor Nero came into play, and he exacted the most barbaric persecution of Christians the world has ever known. It is said that Nero took Christians alive and sewed them in animal skins and threw them to the wild animals to be eaten, and this was entertainment for the masses. Think about that. You could die for your faith. You could die for identifying with Christ, be sewn into an animal skin, and thrown to wild animals to be eaten. It was also said that Nero would take Christians, and he would engulf them in wax and other flammable liquids, and he would impale them on a post and set them on fire to illuminate his garden. This man was wildly barbaric, And it's possible that Paul saw something like this happening and was saying because of the present distress and the future distress, it is better to remain single. So this distress is certainly magnified when one is married and there is a family to worry about and contend with in these situations. Paul will talk more about this in just a few moments. So for for this reason, the present distress, singleness is better. But Paul cautions, but remain as you are. Now, why would Paul say that? Well, if Paul is introducing this impending distress, and married people were thinking, well, it would be better for me to be single than I have to go get divorced. Paul's saying, no, don't do that. Verse 27, are you bound to a wife, or are you married? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Remain as you are. The guiding principle is repeated. If you're married, stay married. If you're currently not married, then stay unmarried. Don't get married or don't stay single only because you think there's a superior spiritual position or because of some external influence on you. Remain as you are. Singleness is better, but marriage is not sinful. 
Remember, you have competing philosophies in the minds of the Corinthians who are saying singleness is better, singleness and celibacy is really better than that, and marriage is better. So you had it all across the board. Paul says marriage is not sinful. Verse 28, but if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries someone who has never been married, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. Again, the present distress, the terminology of trouble doesn't necessarily have eschatological implications to it, although that does come in just a moment. So Paul is battling with the alleged superior spiritual positions that are being taught within the Corinthian church, which he is continuing to refute as he deals specifically specifically with this question about how marriage among the saints is to be understood. So a widow who remarries or a virgin who remarries doesn't commit sin, but they will potentially have more trouble in life, which is why Paul encourages singleness as his personal conviction bathed in the mercy of God that was given to him in his singleness and the ability to remain celibate. Now, Jesus said the same thing about distress and trouble when he spoke of the end times. And by the way, every generation has believed they were in the end times. All of the Letters in our New Testament are written under the assumption that they are in the end times. And so in in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus outlined the turmoil that would be experienced in the end times, of which I believe we are currently in. Jesus told of wars. He told of apostasy. He told of persecution. He told of false prophets. He told of universal tribulation. Now, You can go to your computer, please don't do that on your phone computer right now, and you can peruse through Fox, through USA Today, through CNN, through any news outlet that you want, and you will see all kinds of things that would convince you that you are in the end times. It may not be as bad as it was or as it could be in the future, but it doesn't take a genius to look around this world that we're in and say... There's some pretty bad spots. There's some pretty bad things going on in our world for reasons that nobody can really understand or explain. It's just the way it is. So we see this being lived out in our everyday lives today. So even without the external pressures put upon our lives by things we cannot control, the vast majority of our experiences we cannot control, being married adds more doesn't mean marriage is bad. It just means it adds more. While marriage isn't sinful, it does bring unique challenges and distresses. Now, I probably won't get an amen to that, but we all understand that that is true. And that's not an indictment against our spouse. It's not an indictment against the institution of marriage. It's just simply the reality that being married create unique challenges and distresses. Why? Because marriage involves conflicts, demands, hardships, sacrifices, and adjustments that singleness does not require. Now, marriage is ordained by God... He declares it to be good and holy, and we can understand and testify that it is incredibly fulfilling, but it does not solve all of our problems. In fact, it probably creates more. Why? (laughs) Because two become one, but they are still two personalities, two distinct people with their own likes and dislikes, their own characteristics, their own emotions, their own temperaments, their own wills. Each partner has some degree of anger, some degree of selfishness, even some degree of dishonesty, and some pride, and some forgetfulness, and some thoughtfulness. And so you throw all of that together in a world that is filled with difficulty, and Paul would say, singleness is better. Marriage is good, but in Paul's conviction, singleness is better. So all this is true, even in the best of marriages, and because of the distress, whatever whatever Paul meant by that, he contends that singleness is better. Now, all that I've said about marriage as it relates to the challenge and the uniqueness, it has every bit as much to do with you as it does your spouse. 
I am just as involved in the conflict and difficulties and hardships in my marriage as my wife is. Isn't that the way it is? Isn't that the truth? And we really can't blame the other person. We just have to blame ourselves. What is my contribution to this? What is my contribution in resolving this? What is my sacrifice? What is my point of resolution in these difficulties. Single people don't have to contend with that, although they do have to contend with things that are unique to singleness. Now, secondly in our outline, Paul turns his attention to the challenge of marriage. (laughs) Wait a minute, what were you just talking about? The challenge of marriage? Well, I was a present distress. Really not what the challenge of marriage is specifically as we look at it as this passage unfolds. So the challenge of marriage expands upon Paul's understanding of the distress that he has just identified in a somewhat general way. Paul puts the question of whether or not to marry along with other activities that characterize the entirety of our lives into a proper, excuse me, into a proper eschatological or end times or eternal focus. Let me say that again. Paul is going to talk about the challenge of marriage as we are to understand it in the scope of eternity. Oh, wait a minute. That's very different consideration, isn't it? How difficult is it for us to have an, an eternal focus in our everyday life? It's pretty hard, isn't it? Because there's so much contending for our time and our energy and our focus. So the key to understanding what Paul is about to say in these next, with these five paradoxical assertions that are in 29 through 31 lies in the parallel statements that come before it and after it. So there's a parallel statement that Paul is going to use that frames what he says in between it. So it's a sandwich that is held together by all the stuff in between. So here's the sandwich. Verse 29a, But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened. That has a very clear eschatological implication to it, doesn't it? We understand the time is short. Life is very short. It could be over tomorrow. We just don't have any idea. The other part of that framing unit is the end of verse 31, where Paul says, For the form of this world is passing away. An absolutely clear eschatological assertion. So what Paul is saying is there is this challenge of marriage that is going to take place in light of eternity as we live out our everyday lives under the present distress that is in the world, that is in our lives, that is in the context of relationships in general. And this is what Paul is going to say. Now what Paul says between the time has been shortened and the form of this world is passing away, cannot be taken literally. It is not to be understood literally. If it were to be taken literally, it would undo much of what Paul has already said as it relates to marriage and the other things that he has said previously in the first six chapters of Corinthians. So, if you were to undo, excuse me, if you were to take everything that he has said literally, then it would reduce our lives to a robotic experience where we feel nothing, we react to nothing, and we just live entrenched in stoicism and just show no emotion, no interest, no nothing of any kind. So you'll notice, first of all, the appeal to the brethren that we have here. Paul says, oh, that time verse slipped away. Uh, so to the brethren, but this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened. So the appeal to brethren now extends beyond the, f- the specific focus of the virgin to everybody who is going to hear the words that Paul is saying to the church at Corinth. So the appeal is to everyone, not just 
those who are engaged and not yet married. He wants to change the way all Corinthians view earthly things, not just those who are engaged. So the time is short, and the form of this world is passing away. So while marriage is good and is a gift from God, marriage is temporary. Verse 29b, So that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Now, Big time out. Obviously, you can't take that literally, right? What would that mean? Well, if you were married and you were to live as though you had done, holy cow. Now, you've got to take immorality off the table because the Bible clearly denounces all forms of immorality. But what would your marriage be like if you lived it as if you were not married at all? That would be really difficult, wouldn't it? It would be... Why are we doing this if you're going to act like I'm not even here and we don't have any connection here? So marriage is temporary. Now, as we think about marriage being temporary, we need to understand this for what the spiritual truth really is. When Jesus was challenged by the Sadducees, they asked about the hypothetical woman who was married to seven brothers, all of whom died, and they were trying to trick him and trap him. And so they said to him, So in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? She's been married seven times to seven brothers. So who is she going to be married to? You know what Jesus said? He said, For in the res- resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Angels are not married. There is no marriage in heaven. Now this, I think, rubs us the wrong way. I've spent... 50 years, not me personally, people say, I've spent 50 years married to this person. I have endured all 50 of those years and that person God has given to me. And you're telling me when I get to heaven we're not going to be married anymore? Yep. Will you be bothered by it? Nope. Will you rejoice in that? Nope. Will you regret it? Nope. Why? Because when we're in heaven, our focus is going to be on the unadulterated glory of God. That's it. The worship of Him, the service of Him, and there is no marriage relationship. And this begs the question, so what about my kids? And what about my best friends? And what about... I don't know that the Bible speaks of that directly, but... Very clearly, Jesus taught that there is no marriage in heaven. You will not be hung up about that. It's not going to be a bad thing. It's not going to be a good thing. It's just going to be the thing. You're going to be so focused on who God is that it's not going to matter that you are not relating to this person in marriage. There's a lot about heaven we can't answer, and there's a lot that I can't explain, but we'll need to move on because I'm already getting long. So, marriage will disappear with this world. The time is short, for the form of this world is passing away, right? Because marriage is designed only for this world, not the next. So this seems to be the point that Paul is making when he says the time has been shortened, that human life at its longest is brief. You see these individuals that they put on the news that celebrated their 102nd birthday and you go, my goodness, that is a long life. But what is the length of that life in comparison to eternity? It's nothing. This is why James says, do you not know that your life, you you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. Now, you shouldn't be insulted by that. It's just an indication that this life we live is just a blip on the screen. It's a grain of sand on the beach. It's like a vapor in comparison to eternity. So this reality, this eternal reality that the time is short and the form of the present form of this world is passing away, it's a challenge in general to how we relate to life as a whole. This is the point that Paul is making, and he has included marriage in that scope of eternity by saying, the time is short, the form of this present world is passing away. Paul goes on to say that emotions are temporary. 
Verse 30, And those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Paul is simply saying that sadness and joy are not decisive for the Christian. There is something of far greater significance in this life. Now, that's pretty hard to understand when you're in the thick of it, isn't it? You've got the best news you've ever had. You've got a baby coming or you've got the dream promotion or some other incredible experience has happened and you just can't be any happier or the reverse of that is true and you just can't be any more filled with grief. The Christian life is not defined by emotion. And considering eternity, our emotions take on an entirely different light. What will your present experience of grief be like in eternity? I don't even know it. What will be the most joyous experience in all of your life be like in eternity? I won't even identify with it. Why? Because we're just focused on God in heaven. So marriage is temporary. Emotions are temporary. Those things which tend to dominate our life. Possessions are temporary. Verse 30 continues. And those who buy as though they did not possess. So buying and selling is a part of life, but one's life does not consist in what he or she owns. You've heard it said before, right? You can't take it with you. What does that mean? You could live in the most magnificent mansion the world has ever seen. You could have a car collection that would be the envy of every man in the world. You could have the finest jewelry and the finest clothes. You could have everything the world says makes life worthwhile. But in eternity, you don't have any of that. And that does not mean a thing to you. Our life does not consist of what we own We can't take any of it with us. And a life consumed with possessions is missing an eternal focus. Paul goes on to say that pleasure is temporary. Verse 31. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. So it is one thing to be engaged with the world. It is another to be entangled with the world. Is there a difference? We are in the world, but we're not to be of the world. We cannot really exist apart from our being in the world because we need the things for our existence that the world provides. But we're not to be entangled with the world. So we're not to be of the world embracing its ideals, its philosophies. We're not to be tossed about with what we believe to be true by the current fad that is rifling through the church today. None of these areas about which Paul warns is inherently bad. Marriage, sorrow, rejoicing, possessions, and pleasure all have a proper place in the Christian life. In fact, each is a part of God's provision for our lives here. But human relationships, emotions, possessions, and pleasures become sinful when they dominate thought and behavior, and especially when they interfere with serving the Lord. And that's the point that Paul is making here, is that marriage challenges our priorities. Now, Paul has already said that marriage is good and singleness is good, but each present their own unique challenges to the lives that we live while on this earth. Paul is not advocating for one over the other, but explaining why he prefers singleness as his conviction based upon the mercy of God. He goes on to say in verse 32, But I want you to be free from concern. He explains now why he prefers singleness. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. So single Christians, whether formally married or never married, are not intrinsically more righteous or faithful than married ones, but they are able, because of fewer family demands and obligations, to potentially be more devoted to the Lord's work. Marcy and I have known a number of missionaries who were single because they wanted to be fully devoted to the Lord. They were gifted by God with singleness, and although they probably had challenges with singleness, and although they desired the intimate companionship that marriage can bring, 
their commitment, their preference, their conviction was to serve the Lord without any additional interferences or any additional challenges to what was most important to them. That does not mean that they won't struggle with loneliness. It does not mean that they won't have a desire for that intimate companionship. But in general, they are more free to focus on God and on serving Him. Verse 33, But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. 34, And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and a virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be both holy in body and spirit, but the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Now, Paul is not contradicting himself. He's not saying that singleness is better because of. He's just saying that singleness has less challenges to our priorities. Paul has already established repeatedly that marriage is good, and he's not saying that marriage is better or that singleness is better. He's just saying why it is his current conviction and why he believes it is better to remain as you are if you are engaged to be married. Married people are concerned about the earthly needs of each other, and they should be. But the married person's interests are divided between the earthly and the heavenly. And it should be. Let me give you an example right there. Being in ministry, there is really not enough hours in the day to do everything that could be done in terms of ministry. But when you have a spouse and you have a family, your interests are divided between service to the Lord and service to the family, and that's proper. Because if you are neglecting your family, then you are disobeying what the Bible says about caring for your family. So, marriage does not prevent great devotion to the Lord, and singleness does not guarantee great devotion to the Lord, but singleness has fewer hindrances and more advantages in not dealing with extra priority challenges in life. So it is easier for a single person to be single-minded in the things of the Lord, to be holy in body and spirit that Paul uses here. It speaks of a total setting of oneself apart to the Lord. That word holy always means set apart. So to set yourself apart in body and in spirit embraces a life of singleness and celibacy as a willing sacrifice in order to serve the Lord without any additional challenges. So the married Christian has no choice. His interests must be divided because he cannot be faithful to the Lord if he is unfaithful to his family. Now, I've known some individuals in my life that were so devoted to their ministry that their family suffered and they contemplated divorce and the kids were really affected by that. And that's not healthy, that's not biblical. So in order to be faithful to the Lord, we also have to be faithful to our family. So it is right that our interests are divided. And again, Paul is not saying one is better than the other. Verse 35, but I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. This is why Paul says, I prefer singleness. This is why it's my personal conviction, because I have undistracted devotion to the Lord. Now I want you to imagine being married to Paul. Just to think about it for a minute. Well, honey, you know, I've been gone for 18 months, and i got to get on the boat again, and I'm going to be gone, and I don't know how long I'm going to be gone. I don't know where all I'm going to go. I don't know how you'll take care of yourself while I'm gone. I don't know when I'll come back. I don't know if I'm going to come back. I just know that I'm going to serve the Lord to the fullest of my ability. Paul took four missionary journeys. He spent more time in jail than he spent out of jail. He was beaten beyond belief. He was stranded. He was shipwrecked. He was hungry. All of the things that Paul experienced. And what would be your what would your life be like if that was your spouse? You'd be consumed, right? So Paul says, for your benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord, 
which is the way God has gifted me to be single and celibate so I can pursue Him without any additional distractions that a good marriage would bring. So Paul is not putting a legalistic noose, which is the literal meaning of a restraint, around the necks of single Christians or around the necks of those who were engaged. They're not under compulsion either to marry or to remain single. So in advising them to remain as they are, he had two motives, both of them, for their own benefit. He wanted to spare them trouble, which he identified in verse 28 and in verse 32, and he wanted them to have undistracted devotion to the Lord as he has just said. Now hang on, we're almost done. The last point, the choice of marriage. So since Paul is not trying to create a restraint, but focusing on their understanding of the challenges of marriage, he leaves the choice up to them to those that are engaged, to those that he is specifically addressing as the virgins. So the three interpretations of this passage, which have historically competed for primacy, can be illustrated in our major English translations, and each of these have their unique challenges and difficulties. So this is a bit of an expansion of what I've already said, and a little bit of a repeat, but because of the unique verbs and, and word usage in here, it's necessary to do this. So either the situation in view involves a father deciding whether or not to give his virgin daughter in marriage. While this is possible, the father-daughter relationship is mentioned nowhere in any of chapter 7. So it is probable that those who come to that conclusion do so by what they believe to be implied as a part of Jewish history and culture and custom. But nothing in the passage really establishes the father-daughter relationship. So the second option that we, that we understand these verses with is couples living in a spiritual marriage without any sexual relationship who are struggling to maintain their abstinence. So that assumption, so the assumption that Paul is addressing in this view is a celibate couple living together as spiritual brother and sister is somewhat unlikely because that terminology is not used anywhere in the passage. So this view would also suggest that Paul is addressing a husband who is in a spiritual marriage, who is having trouble coping with his sexual desires, and wishes to engage in sexual relations with his wife. Now Paul has already opposed extended periods of celibacy in marriage, and the verb usage that he chooses here does not fit the application of permission of marriage and celibacy. So when Paul says, if you're going to be married, that's fine. If you don't want to be married, that's fine. That would contradict what he's already said about singleness and celibacy being unnatural. The third option, as argued earlier, or as concluded earlier, is that these verses are, are addressing Christians who are engaged to be married, and they are contemplating whether or not we should continue in the betrothal process. So if you're engaged and you become a Christian, now you're introduced to this question, well, he's saying we should remain as we are. So what do we do now that we're betrothed? He's dealt with widows and widowers and the unmarried in general. He's dealt with the married people. He's dealt with others who are married to unbelieving spouses. And so now, in dealing with a unique group of people who are betrothed, likely addressing the male as the leader in the betrothal arrangement and relationship, as was common in that day. And some translations apply what they believe is being discussed with the father giving the daughter, which may or may not be accurate. So it's, again, very, very complicated to parse it out in a way that doesn't make you go, what? What did you just say? I'm not sure what you're talking about anymore. So Paul is addressing Christians who are engaged. It's the most recent English translations, how they've chosen to do that. And the majority of modern commentary and modern scholarship has reached the conclusion that Paul is addressing those that are betrothed. And there is the male and the female both addressing this. So it makes sense of the details of the passage and is consistent with Paul's advice elsewhere in the chapter as a whole. So Paul deals with the choice of marriage, and this is what he says to the engaged couple. Marriage is proper. Verse 36, But if any man, who is the any man, there's not talking about a father here, 
But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin, now my translation supplies the word daughter, your translation may not, but if any man thinks he is acting unbecomingly toward his betrothed, if she has passed her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. So if our understanding is correct that this is talking to the betrothed Christian couple, the man is the potential groom, the virgin is the potential bride, and he says, if he's acting unbecomingly toward her, if, or if she's past her youth, and it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. So to act unbecomingly may mean not remaining celibate in the betrothal period. So if he's acting unbecomingly, again we're thinking that this is the male and the female and the betrothed arrangement. If he's acting unbecomingly, it may mean that there's a struggle to maintain celibacy, and that's what Paul is dealing with. Or the male was delaying the wedding beyond which would be normal, and Paul is advising that that is a consideration that should be taken off the table. Or if she is older, then a typical engagement should be delaying, may be difficult, and marriage is therefore proper. So, struggling in your celibacy, uh, it's perceived that she's beyond her age, or there's other issues, then marriage is proper. To get married is appropriate under these circumstances and is not sinful. Secondly, Paul says singleness is also proper. Remember, marriage is good, Singleness is also good. In Paul's estimation, it was better because of the reasons we've already talked about. Verse 37. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided that his own decided in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. Now again, virgin daughter is supplied by the NASB translators. So he who stands firm in his heart, the male in the betrothal relationship, not being under any constraint, has authority over his own will, not acting unbecomingly toward his bride-to-be, has decided to keep his own virgin, not necessarily virgin daughter, but to keep his betrothed as a betrothed, he will do well. So what Paul is saying here basically is this. If you are engaged to be married as the man, and you have a conviction in your heart that it's better to remain single while you are in to remain single even though you are engaged and to keep her in this betrothal period for an undisclosed amount of time you will do well so marriage is pro- is a prop- appropriate singleness is also appropriate so the conviction to remain single so be it there's a self control uh, issue while being engaged if, if they're self-controlled while engaged and it can be maintained while engaged, so be it. It appears that Paul is referring to one who is convicted to delay the marriage during the present crisis, whatever that means, and staying engaged until ready is okay. So Paul points out the choice to marry or to not marry is fine. Both are appropriate. Verse 38. So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. Again, this verse is what makes all of the understandings of virgin very difficult because you have the verb change of giving or presenting as opposed to just being a virgin daughter or a virgin. So the final word that Paul makes here, verse 39 and 40, a wife is bound... As long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So marriage is permanent in this life, and a divorce should not be sought. If a widow or a widower desires to be married again, they should marry a believer, which is implied by the phrase, in the Lord. And so to both virgins and to widows and widowers, Paul repeats the principle, remain as you are. And then the final word that he has here in verse 40. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of the Lord. So Paul repeats what he's already said, and when he says that I have the Spirit of the Lord, Paul is speaking to both groups that are advocates for singleness and those that are advocates for marriage as the superior spiritual position. And he would say, you boast that you have the Spirit of the Lord, I have the Spirit of the Lord also. And I believe that this is a bit of a segue as Paul is going to begin to deal with Christian liberty 
and how they have applied that to their lives. And he uses his position as one who has the Spirit of the Lord as an authoritative position to deal with those things that they have taken great liberty in. I'm glad that's over. I really am. I'm glad that's over. So, my take on this is this. What Paul has said about marriage all throughout this chapter is marriage is good. If God has given you the marriage of gift, go with it. Live life. Be prosperous. If God has given you a gift of singleness, that's fine. Go live your life to the fullest. You won't be confronted with the same kind of challenge as those who are married are. Both are good. Neither are superior spiritual positions to the other. Think about marriage as well as the entirety of your life in terms of eternity. Because the time has been shortened and the present form of this world is passing away. Isn't that true? Therefore, being married, being single, is to be lived in light of eternity. What it all really boils down to that in this world, all we have is what we're going to experience and enjoy in the afterlife. And what is that? It's just about our relationship with God. That's it. That's it. Paul doesn't say it, but you could say marriage is nothing, singleness is nothing, because we have the Lord. Being caught up in all the things of life, having all those things is nothing, because we have the Lord. So we'll continue on in our study of Corinthians with the subject of Christian liberty in the weeks ahead. Verse, or excuse me, chapters eight through eleven all deal with Christian liberty in some form or fashion, and so we'll address that. Let's pray.